Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 22. The Gospel according to Luke chapter 22. And our passage today is found in verses 14 to 30, which I will read for us, but please have it open in front of you because we will reference it together and there will be uh, certain portions of it that I will uh, have us read aloud together as we drill down into this this morning. Luke 22, verse verses 14 to 30. Look at this together with me. Luke chapter 22, beginning at verse 14. The Last Supper. A covenant confirmed, a kingdom conferred. Would you say that with me? A covenant confirmed, a kingdom conferred. Say it one more time. A covenant confirmed, a kingdom conferred. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal or this Pascha with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is ultimately fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. Then he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, This cup is the new covenant between God and His people. An agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. But here at this table, sitting among us as a friend, is the man who will betray me. For it has been determined that the Son of Man must die. But what sorrow awaits the one who betrays him? The disciples began to ask each other which of them would ever do such a thing. Then they began to argue among themselves about who would be the greatest among them. Jesus told them, yet they are called who it will be different. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank. And the leader should be like a servant. Who is more important, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? The one who sits at the table, of course. But not here. Not here. 
For I am among you as one who serves. You have stayed with me in my time of trial. And just as my Father granted me a kingdom, I now grant you the right to eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Loved ones, all of the themes that we have been considering over these last few weeks so far in our study, all of them are summed up, drawn together, recapitulated in the Pascha meal. This meal that Jesus hosted the night before His death. Luke's account here, which we have just looked at together, gives us this climactic moment of Jesus' life and ministry. At this Last Supper, Jesus, in a culminating way, embodied Yahweh's desire to sit and dwell in easy intimacy with His people. Sharing His very life, His very substance with them. He said to His disciples that He desired this passionately. He had an eagerness that was beyond eagerness. An intense passion to share this together, He said in verse 15 of our passage. As we've seen Yahweh established the Passover meal as a sign of His covenant with His holy people Israel. So it is that Jesus now, God in human flesh, Yahweh made flesh and become human, gathered His community around the Passover table. All of the familiar Passover motifs of liberation, of redemption, of unity and festivity, all of them are at play here. But they are being redefined and reconfigured in relation to Jesus now. Isaiah's vision, as we've looked at it, of the sumptuous meal on God's holy mountain is described with this word eschatological. And I've used that word with you before and explained to you what it means. Isaiah's vision is described this way. And this implies to us that it has to do with God's deepest and final desire for the world that He has made. As the commencement of the Last Supper, as He settled in with His disciples, Jesus explicitly evoked this eschatological dimension. What does He say? Look at His words in verse 16. In fact, let's read them together. Will you lift your voices with me? For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in 
the kingdom of God. And when he took the first cup of Passover wine, he reiterated the theme again. Read it with me. It's on the screen for us. For I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. It's very, very important that we remember that this meal took place on the night before Jesus' death. Which is to say, at the moment when he was summing up his life and preparing for his own Passover into the realm of the Father. Therefore, insisting that he will not eat or drink again until the kingdom arrives is tantamount to explaining that this meal has a final and unsurpassable symbolic significance. That it is his last words spoken as it were, in the shadow of the eternal and thus fragrant and redolent words of divine order. He's confirming a covenant with what he says. He's conferring something. The room of the Last Supper is Isaiah's holy mountain. And the meal that Jesus hosts is the supper of rich food and well-aged wines. It is as though the longed-for future has stepped forward and appeared even now in time there with His first disciples. What stood at the heart of this event? What stood at the heart of this event? Jesus took the unleavened bread of the Passover, the bread symbolic of Israel's hasty flight from slavery to freedom. He blessed it in accord with the traditional Passover prayer of blessing. He broke it and he distributed it to his disciples. We're seeing echoes again of the feeding of the thousands of people that we looked at last week. Remember that? And he says to them in verse 19, read it with me, it's on the screen for us. Lift your voices again. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after they had eaten, he took a cup of wine, traditionally called the cup of blessing, and said, lift your voices again, will you? This cup is the new covenant between God and His people. An agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. 
Jesus, Messiah, acting once more in the very person of Yahweh. Jesus fed his friends with his very substance, affecting the deepest kind of divine human connectedness. Listen, listen closely because it's important that we see this. He feeds his friends with the very substance affecting the deepest kind of divine human connectedness or oneness or union among them because of the radicality of his own deep divine human connectedness and oneness and union with them. This is my body. This is my blood. We hear echoes of this same oneness, this same union later on in Jesus' high priestly prayer to the Father. He prays in John 17 and verse 21. Lift, lift your voices with me. Look at this. I pray that they will all be one. Just as you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they also be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. There's a profound connectedness and union and oneness that he's talking about here. That he desires to know with us. You see, it's important for us to understand that for him to say body and blood in a non-dualistic context of first century Judaism. In other words, in a context that doesn't, that doesn't separate, that doesn't separate spiritual and sacred from human and earthly, but looks at things in a very holistic way. For him to say in that kind of a context, body, this is my body and my blood, is to say, this is myself. So Jesus was inviting his disciples to feed on himself and thereby to draw his life into theirs, conforming themselves to him and in the most intimate and complete way possible. This is an incredible mystery that is, that is so incomprehensible to us in many ways. And yet it, it rings to us of a, of a desire for intimacy and union and oneness with us. We must never keep the account of the fall in Genesis 3 far from our minds when we consider these events. Palm Sunday is, is a bit of a it's a, it's a it's a bit of a difficult day, I find, 
in some ways because it's a day where you feel conflicted within. You feel the tension of the cries of Hosanna, but then later the cries of crucify him. The multitudes that day as Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem as we shared together earlier in the Scripture reading. Among them, not all of them of course, there were, there were many who remained uh, devoted in, in their belief in following Him, but many of them in that multitude that were crying, Hail Jesus! Hail Jesus! Hail Jesus! were later on saying, Nail Jesus! Nail Jesus! Nail Jesus! We like to think that we're different from those people because we know better. We have the privilege of knowing things after the fact. But in so many ways, loved ones, I'm just like those in the crowd. That cried hail and later cried nail. And so we've got to keep the account of the fall close to our minds when we consider these events together. If our trouble began, watch this, if our trouble began with a bad meal, you recall in recent weeks we reflected on the sacred meal that was evidence of and, and, and pictured in Genesis. One, in the garden, when God created the garden and, and created humankind and created all things and said, here, enjoy this, feast on this, this is for your pleasure and your enjoyment. And then it turned bad in Genesis 3. And so if our trouble began with a bad meal, grasping and seizing at godliness on our own terms because God said, you can enjoy all of this, but there's one tree that you are not to touch, not to partake of. He didn't actually say you're not to touch it. He said you're not to eat from it. And we know the story, as we've reflected on it in recent weeks, they chose to partake of it. They chose to eat. And it was, it was evidence of a grasping and seizing at godliness on their own terms. On our own terms. We want God on our own terms. And I won't reiterate everything we've looked at. You need to go back to those messages if you were not with us. But if our trouble began with such a bad meal as that, then our salvation commences. Watch this. Our salvation commences with a rightly structured and ordered meal. God offering His life, offering His very substance as a free gift. What was foreshadowed when Mary laid the Christ child in the manger. 
Remember what the manger was? A feeding trough. He is to feed the world. And what was foreshadowed when she laid him in the manger came to its fulfillment and its full, its full expression at this meal now that Jesus is sharing with his first disciples. The manger foreshadowed that. This meal that he was sharing with them fulfilled it. It's a moment of significance that immediately after this extraordinary event, this constitution of the church around God's gift of self, it's significant that Jesus then immediately following speaks of a treachery. Take, eat, this is my body, this is my blood. This is, this is the covenant I'm confirming with you. I won't partake of this again until the kingdom comes. There's a conferring of the kingdom that he is passing on and imparting to those first disciples and, and thereby to us as ancestors spiritually with them. And, and, and then he says in verse 21 these words. Read them with me, will you? Lift your voices. But here... At this table, sitting among us as a friend, is the man who will betray me. In the biblical reading, we see that God desires and those desires themselves have been from the very beginning opposed, resisted. God's desires have been opposed. Consistently, human beings have preferred the isolation and separation of sin to the festivity and fulfillment of the sacred meal. We've preferred the isolation of sin over the provision of Christ. Theologians have called this anomalous tendency the mysterium iniquitatis, the mystery of evil. Why is it that God makes such provision for us and yet we, we choose rather than eating this nourishing fruitful, bountiful, sumptuous meal that He provides for us, why is it that we instead prefer and choose to eat junk food of our own over that? Doing things our way. And the isolation that comes with sin. The mystery of it. The mystery of evil. For there's no rational ground for it. I mean, think about it. What would you do if this sumptuous feast was set before you and then on the other side of the room was a bag of Doritos? 
if you were to go for the Doritos over the sumptuous meal of all of these wonderful dishes, Babette's Feast, if you remember it, reflect on it again, and we say, oh, no, I'm going to go for the Doritos. Frito-Lay's my friend. There would be no, we, we, would, uh, we would give our heads a shit. What is wrong? There's no rational ground for it. No reason why this mystery of evil should exist. But there it is. There it stubbornly is. Always shadowing the good. Parasitic upon that which tries to destroy. So, we should not be too surprised then that as the sacred meal that Jesus is sharing here with His first disciples comes to its richest possible expression, we should not be surprised that evil accompanies it. Judas, the betrayer, expresses this mysterium inequitatis, the mystery of evil and iniquity. And he expresses it with particular symbolic power. Judas had spent years, reflect on this with me, Judas had spent years in intimacy with Jesus. He'd walked with Jesus. They had shared everything together. They lived together. He took in the Lord's moves and thoughts at very close and intimate quarters, sharing the table of fellowship and friendship with Him. Sadly, let me just interject this again. We've already reflected on it a little bit in weeks past, but the meaning and significance of meal sharing alone is largely lost on the Christian community today. In some of your cultures, you, would, you, you, you understand this because the concept of meal sharing within your culture still holds great significance, greater significance than many of us in the church, many of us in the Western world give to it particularly North America. The significance is lost on us. In the cultural world of the ancient Near East, to share a meal with someone is a guarantee of peace and trust and fraternity and forgiveness. The shared table symbolizes a shared life. For Jesus to share a meal with the riffraff of society, because that's what these disciples were considered, former tax collectors, he hung out with sinners and prostitutes, he had a reputation for this, and for him, and he shared meals with them, and for him to share meals with the riffraff of society could mean only one of two things. Either he himself was a sinner or sinners 
we're being welcomed into fellowship with God. We know he was not a sinner. He was without sin. So it must be the latter. Sinners were being welcomed into fellowship with God. And all of this, remember, all of this before they even went to the altar or prayed a sinner's prayer. The inclusion of sinners in the community of salvation achievable in a table fellowship is the most dramatic expression of the message of the redeeming love of the merciful and compassionate God. It's incredible. And so... It should come as no surprise to us that at this meal that he was sharing again, accompanying it was this evil. Judas shared all of this intimacy, and yet Judas saw fit to turn Jesus over to his enemies and to interrupt the intimate, coherent union that he knew with Jesus, that he was experiencing with him again at this Last Supper, this Pascha meal. Those of us who regularly gather around the table of intimacy with Christ, as we do here, monthly, I have to be honest with you, I've been contemplating even doing it more than monthly together, sharing the Eucharist together because of the the incredible significance that it holds for us. But those of us who gather regularly around the table of intimacy with Christ and yet engage consistently in the egoism and hedonism and self-centered works of treachery and darkness, we are meant to see ourselves here in the betrayer. In Judas. Judas is me. Judas is you. So we can't wag our finger at Judas. That old dirty rascal. Because Judas is us. What follows is a scene that were it not so very tragic, it would be humorous. And what follows proves the point of what I just said. Because what follows is, is so very tragic. And if it wasn't, it would be, maybe be considered humorous. Having experienced firsthand the intense act of love by which Jesus formed a new humanity around the eating of this meal, the eating of His body, and the drinking of His blood, having sensed that the deepest meaning of this new union, this new life, this new way to be human is self-sacrificing and self-giving love. The disciples, what do they do in the middle of this moment? They childishly quarrel and bicker about personal titles and status and recognition and honors. (laughs) 
Read it with me, Luke 22, verse 24. Lift your voices. Then they began to argue among themselves about who would be the greatest among them. Jesus just discloses something. Someone who's sitting here today as one of our friends, this man will betray me. When the, the, the guys break out, and I'm, well, is it me? Is it me? It's you, isn't it? Oh, it's not, no, it's not me. It's you. It's, is it, what do you mean it's me? I'm going to be one of the great ones. And they start to bicker with one another. It sounds like a lot of churches I've been in. <laughs> if you can't say amen, say ouch or something. It's, it, 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 this is us, loved ones. This is me. This is you. This is us. We can relate with this so closely. As we've seen in the table fellowship that Jesus practiced throughout His ministry, Jesus consistently undermined the systems of domination and of power and the social stratifications that marked the culture of His time. His order, His order, God's kingdom would be characterized by an equality and mutuality born of our shared relationship to our Creator God who gives His sunlight to both the evil and the good. And He sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, verse 45. So, therefore, games, these games of personal ambition, these games of jockeying for position and power, and, and these claims of spiritual or so, social superiority are incompatible, inimical, they're adversarial and hostile to the community that finds its point of origin and orientation around the table of Jesus' body and blood. And this is why Jesus responded so promptly and so unambiguously to the disciples' juvenile, childish preoccupations. Look what he says. Read it together with me. It's on the screen for us again. In this world, the kings and great men lord it over their people, yet they are called friends of the people. They like to throw their weight around and give themselves fancy titles, but among you it will be different. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank the senior becoming like the junior, and the leader should be like a servant. Jesus was saying that my kingdom, my Father's kingdom, 
is not like the kingdoms of this world. It won't be like that here. Not at this table, Jesus says. That's not how it works. He was redefining and reconfiguring and reordering everything about the way they would think about who they are and the kingdom that they are a part of in Christ. And in this covenant that he was cutting with them through his blood and his body and the kingdom he was conferring upon them, he wanted to give them a clear understanding of what it would look like. And what do they do? They break into this bickering about who would be the greatest. The very mindset that Jesus was trying to reconfigure in them was still rising up and resisting. And it happens in us. It happens among us. In our lives, the way we order our lives, the way we configure our lives, the way we live our lives. In a congregation that I was serving in that will go unnamed, there was a process that we were walking through at one point in our journey together where we were, we were, re, we were renaming and reconfiguring some of these things because we were wanting to align the way we functioned as a congregation together, we were wanting to better align it with what Jesus was talking about here, with his kingdom. And he says here to us, the kingdom, the great men of these world, they like to throw their weight around, they like to give themselves fancy titles. And so one of the things we were doing is we were changing some of the titles, some of the names, and instead of the church board being called the church board of directors we're part of the board of directors we felt instead that it would be more appropriate and more in keeping because words are important loved ones words are important they carry things with them that it would be more appropriate for us to refer at, to, rather than this board of directors, which was kind of like a, you know, a, a business term, a term for the corporate world. And, and that's why some of them liked it, because it made them feel important and distinguished. I'm on the board of directors, and the rest of you peons will listen to what I tell you to do. We changed that to instead a servant team, a council of servants. Because when you look in the New Testament, that term deacon, so board of deacons is even very appropriate, which is what we use here. That term deacon means just that. Servant. Diakonos. Well, there was one individual in particular that just would have nothing of it. He was not going to be part of a lowly board of deacons. He was a part of the board of directors. And the pushback and the resistance, and I tell you that to simply say, 
we like to think that these things don't exist today in our midst. This just happened during Jesus' day. Jesus, this was the stuff Jesus had to deal with. We deal with this in our lives today. Jesus says it won't be like that here. Among you, it will be different. Read it again with me. Will you lift your voices? But among you, it will be different. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank and the senior becoming like the junior and the leader should be like a servant. I am among you as a servant among servants in His kingdom. I am among you, as Paul said, we are sinners. I am the chief sinner. Boy, how's that for a title? Boy, that makes me feel good. I am the chief sinner. You say, well, yeah, but you, you've been saved. You've been purchased by the blood. Yes, I have. But this is, again, the mystery that we find in the Scriptures and in the Gospel. We are declared saints in Christ Jesus, and so we are. And so my prayer, beloved, every day is, Lord God, would You, be, would you make me a saint? But as Martin Luther so wisely and so intuitively and so perceptively taught, In his statement, the Latin is simul justice a peccator. It means at the same time I am a saint and a sinner. At the same time I have been justified and declared his and declared and made righteous, but yet I still, we still contend, we still fight and resist sin. And it's no different now than it was for Jesus this day, this evening around the table. If as the German philosopher Feuerbach said, we are what we eat. <laughs> Think about that. We are what we eat. Are we Doritos or this sumptuous meal? We are what we eat. Would you say that with me? We are what we eat. Then those who eat the flesh of Jesus and drink his blood must constitute a completely new society. That's what Jesus was saying. You will be different. It will be different among you. If you partake of me in this way, if you feed on my very substance, the very substance of who I am, and you know the union and the oneness with me that you were created and intended to know from the very beginning, though it was forfeited in Genesis 3, I have come to restore it and to rescue you and if you partake of me in this way, then it will be different among you. A completely new society, a completely new way to be human, grounded in love and humility and compassion and grace and mercy and servanthood and nonviolence. 
and non-domination. Reminding them of their crucial importance as the first members of his church that he was building, Jesus said these words. Lift your voices with me and read them, will you? Just as my Father has granted and conferred on me a kingdom, I now grant and confer on you the right to eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. We can't even begin to comprehend all that is freighted in these words that Jesus is saying. The order of love that obtains within and is, and indeed is God. God is love. And that order of love became human in Jesus. In Jesus. In the flesh of Jesus. And through Jesus. And was given to the community that He founded. That community, in turn, the new Israel, would be in accord with Isaiah's prophetic vision, which we've looked at, the means by which the whole world would be gathered to God. Here the story again of the multiplication of the loaves and fishes comes to our mind. Jesus feeding the many. I have come that the world might feed on me and be nourished and know the abundant life they are meant to know. Initially, as we saw in that story last week, the disciples refused their mission to be the new Israel, to be the new society that Jesus was establishing. They refused. They just didn't get it. You want us to feed them? They refused to feed the gathered crowd. But then, in light of the miracle of grace that Jesus performed, they became the very distributors of that same grace. Jesus broke and gave. And then they distributed grace in abundance there were basketfuls left over, the story said. Grace in abundance. The overwhelming grace of God. They became distributors of that grace. And likewise, a very similar dynamic is on display here in the account of the Last Supper. We see Jesus taking, blessing, breaking, Distributing. And he was saying, this is what my kingdom looks like. This is what it's all about, guys. This is, this is the substance of it. Now you need to go and share this with the world. And it's driven by love. And it's driven by servanthood. There's no fancy titles here. The greatest among you is the servant. The senior becomes like the junior. Beloved, it's never enough 
to simply eat and drink the body and blood of Jesus as we do monthly here. It's never enough just to partake. One must become a willing, humble bearer and sharer of the provision and power that one has received. The meal always leads and contributes to the mission. Our scripture reading today earlier in the service was the triumphal entry of Jesus. And I already said that we're like those crowds who shouted, hail him, and then shouted, nail him. But you know what we're also like? We're also, I'm also like that donkey. But Jesus said, you go to the village here and you untie You'll find a donkey, a young colt. You untie it. And if the owners come and they ask, what are you doing? Why are you untying it? Why are you... Tell them the master has need of it. Jesus, in order to come into this world, must be born on our lives. Just as the donkey carried Jesus, an unimpressive, humble animal. It wasn't a great steed. It wasn't a, a great white stallion. It wasn't anything like that. It was a humble donkey. I am that donkey. <laughs> hee-haw, hee-haw. Yeah? Come on, guys. We can admit this. Our wives know we are donkeys at times. Hello? I am that donkey. You are that donkey. That humble, unimpressive one who would bear and share his presence with the world. This is what his kingdom looks like. This is the kingdom he has conferred upon us. This is the covenant he has cut with us. It rubs against the grain of our ego. It rubs against the grain of our pride. It rubs against our ambitious nature to be great and to accomplish something and to be known for something in the world. It rubs against the grain of all of that. Jesus said it'll be different here around this table. And here's what it'll look like. And not only did he say that, he lived it himself. God demonstrated this kind of love for us in that while we were still sinners, he came. He was born. He became one of us. He died. He rose again. He ascended and he will return soon and very soon. We're going to see our king. But let's not rush through the week, yeah?